the the week, the welcome week in which I moved into my college residence hall, right across the street from my residence hall, there was the the remnants of an old hospital building. And I remember welcome week when I was uh, going up and down the stairs, moving my stuff in to my dorm my freshman year. I was able to watch as they had this wrecking ball tearing down the last wall of this hospital. And then from there, they started to build. It was the, uh, the new building for their business school. And, and I recall that the tearing down was actually quite quick. It was the building that was very slow. And it seemed like they were doing so much, it was so much time, and, and so much time was spent, and they didn't quite even rise off the ground. The reason why is because all that time was invested in building the foundation of that building. Because the the walls that go up, right, the structures that go above ground, if there is a weak foundation, that building simply will not last. So much is spent investing into that foundation, time and effort, preparation. This is for a building that it might stand for 50, 100, 200 years. Also, you think about how we have, even in this verse, Ephesians 2.20, speaking about the foundation, the beginning. And that very center of that foundation is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we think about this verse and the importance of Christ for his church, nobody, nobody advances past our Lord Jesus Christ. If you advance past him, you've missed him. You've lost him. All that we say and do in our lives, in the church, in our personal lives, should be centered around Jesus Christ. He is that litmus test. We cannot have our own litmus test that we bring in. Well, you must acknowledge this, this, and this. No. It has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus, who is the front and center of his church. And if ever Jesus were to, so to say, walk out and leave the church, then we're nothing but a social club. We're nothing but a country club. And admittedly, it seems like there are better social and country clubs out there, of of better status in society, which should revolve around uh, Jesus would be people who have a relationship with him. A love for Him, a desire for Him, a humble submission to Him. Here in this book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul speaks about his love for Jesus Christ. He is the glorious Savior. And regarding our Lord Jesus, we have, whenever we talk about Christ, right, we think about His love for His bride, the church. And here we have the mystery. This mystery that is made known in in Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul outlines the salvation that God has planned for us. He planned from eternity past. And he fulfills it. The working out in the everyday life. in, In redemptive history. And then he tells us about the eternity to come. When when we will be placed in heaven. That Jesus has gone up to, to prepare a place for us. And we look forward to that day. In Ephesians 2, this is salvation executed. 
beginning from how you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. And he says we are by nature children of wrath. Meaning that if you and I think that we're somehow, there's some reason why God chose us that we would be recipients of salvation. That somehow there's something meritorious in us. Something we did. Something we thought. You've already missed. You've already missed the free grace of God. And that if you're going to proceed beyond that, the answer, the answer that we have is it's all going to be wrong. We must begin with the step. There's nothing better about us at all by which God chose us. It is only by His free grace, only by His own choice. That's the best that we can come up with. We don't know why He chose us. Because there's nothing better about us. We were no, no more righteous than anyone else. Here, we see in today's passage that Christ's church is founded upon the apostles' teaching, which is Christ Jesus as her one and only mediator. Christ's church is founded upon the apostles' teaching, which is Christ Jesus as her one and only mediator. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the foundation of the apostles' doctrine for Christ's church. The second, the centrality of Christ to his church. So the first point, the foundation of the apostles' doctrine for Christ's church. In the first half of verse 20. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In this section, which is really verses 19 to 22, the apostle Paul gives us three pictures, three word images of the church of Jesus Christ. So he mentions the matter of being fellow citizens. So there the church is likened to a city, a state, or a nation. So we are fellow citizens. But, and that's important because we who are in Christ have the full rights of citizens. But it's far more personal than that. This is why he comes up with the second image of members of a household. And these are members who are family members, meaning children, sons and daughters. So the church there is then described as a family and then to verse 19. Here in verse 20, we have God's people spoken of as stones within a building. So the church is described here as a building. And then verses 21 and 22, the description about the connection of the entire building, the cohesiveness in Jesus Christ. Then he speaks about the growth of the building and how this building is a habitation of God by his spirit. Here we examine this foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here, we think about how in our country, and I realize some of you might think that I'm a foreigner, but I'm I'm a native-born American. So when I speak about this country, I'm speaking about my own country. And here, we ought to understand that in comparison to other continents, other lands, This nation is so young, it's 300 years, right? And we have a horrible problem of having a bad memory in the United States. We have a horrible memory. You look at other other places. You look at uh, Israel. You look at China. They have six or 7,000 years of recorded history, right? And and you think about 300 years is but a blip for us. We think about how the... Us as Americans, we seem to be so rootless. We're not connected to this, this grand plan, right? We think of ourselves as somehow a new beginning. But it wasn't so for Christ's church. 
It, it wasn't as if the church was simply a novelty. That the church of Jesus Christ was a plan that God had made. That it was a plan from the beginning. There are certain people who, who claim something called apostolic succession. Hey, we have apostolic succession from Peter. Well, just because they claim that doesn't mean that we don't have any claim to history. We don't believe in apostolic succession. And it's not to one man. It was to the apostles, plural, that Jesus appointed. And it doesn't start there. It goes, it goes back. It goes further back. You look at the promises that God made to King David, right? That he will never cease to have a king on his throne. Speaking about the son of David, who is Jesus Christ. We go further back. You look at the constitution of the nation of Israel. The giving of the Ten Commandments that we read earlier. This was God constituting a nation. You look back further. You have Abraham. From Abraham, you have the, the beginning, the promises that God made to Abraham. It wasn't as if the promises failed. God made certain promises that he is reckoned righteous by faith. And 400 years later, he gave the law promises still by faith. And you look at the beginnings of the church. We could go all the way back to Adam. To Adam, we can start and say this is part of Christ's church. So we come back, we come back to this idea of an apostle. So the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So what is an apostle? An apostle is one who is an eyewitness of the resurrection. Someone who has seen our risen Lord. This is 1 Corinthians 9.1 where the apostle Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So here, even in scripture we have a definition that an apostle is one who has seen the Lord, who has seen the risen Lord. You see here... The Apostle Paul has to specify this because he was one abnormally born. The other Apostles all were here. They saw Jesus before, before Jesus left, and they saw him afterwards, right? They were, they were taught by him for the three years or so of his ministry. Uh, but here, the Apostle Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. He was one abnormally born, but he was still yet one who witnessed uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's the first one, an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. An apostle was also one who was specially called, designated, specifically he was one who was sent. That's what an apostle means, one who is sent. That as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent certain men that they would be the ones who would preach this good news. That they would be the, test, they would be the eyewitness testimonies of, hey, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. We saw him after he was raised from the dead. Now, there were, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, there were, there were over 500 witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Not all of them were apostles, because they weren't the ones who were specifically called, designated, and sent to bring this good news. The third mark of an apostle is one who is given special authority by God to work miracles, specifically miracles for the purposes for the purpose of authenticating the message of the gospel and their authority as apostles. They were to found churches. Acts 2 verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
to the apostles and the power that God gave them to do these miracles. It was not told, it's not, hey, I, I got this huge show. I'm going to start charging money for tickets. No. It wasn't anything like that. It was, hey, these men have a message that the power that God gave them was simply to authenticate this message that they brought. It was not personal. It was not for personal gain. So we think of also about the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. Who are these prophets being referred to? There's two opinions. One is that they were the Old Testament prophets, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But the question has to be asked, why doesn't he say prophets and apostles? Because the Old Testament prophets came first. So what, what Paul mentions here, that he mentions again later in Ephesians 4, is the apostles and prophets. So the other view is that these are New Testament prophets. These are New Testament prophets mentioned in Ephesians 4, and we see that, and was it uh, in the list about spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians, that they filled a special role of giving special revelation to God's people until the Holy Spirit would complete this canon of Scripture. So until uh, revelation would would come to an end, right? Meaning that the book of Revelation would be written, the canon made that God provided certain prophets to give special revelation to his people. Generally, they're unnamed. Uh, we don't know their names. The, the ones that were mentioned in Acts uh, chapter 21, there was a reference to uh, Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Evangelist was one of the seven deacons that were appointed in Acts 6. We're told that he had four virgin daughters, and they were prophetesses. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. We ask also, so that was who, who were those prophets? Uh, most likely the New Testament prophets. But what is a prophet? A prophet is one who receives a direct message, special revelation from God. It's truth revealed directly by the Holy Spirit. It's not through the medium of the scriptures. So when we receive special revelation, it is from the medium of the scriptures. So you might say that the prophet was one who received special revelation immediately, as, as opposed to we receive special revelation immediately through the scriptures. <clears throat> so here, perhaps you might ask, well, which one is it then, New Testament or Old Testament prophets? Seems like the reference is to New Testament prophets, but it's not as if it's not true that the Old Testament prophets weren't a foundation. They weren't telling, you any, they weren't telling us anything different than what uh, the apostles were teaching. They were simply those who were in the Old Covenant pointing ahead that there would be a Messiah to come, that he is Jesus. We think about this foundation then. Is it specifically the men? Was there something specific about them? Is the apostolic succession what's important? The answer is no. The foundation was actually the doctrine, their teachings, the teachings of the apostles. And their teaching was not something they made up. That none of these men were told in Second Peter that the pro no prophecy came about by someone's own interpretation. 
In Galatians chapter 1 verse 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul in giving this rebuke to the Galatians. He's identifying the very principle about the apostolic foundations. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So here he says, if anyone, even if we or an, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. So he's saying, what he's saying there is, hey, if my message to you has changed, what I preached to you earlier, if the message I'm preaching to you now is different... What he's saying is, let me be accursed. There was something significant about the gospel message that they preached to them. And he's, he's saying, it is a serious thing for someone to tamper with that message. Even if it's one of us. If we go off the rails. Here, the apostles were those who were taught by Jesus during his earthly ministry. They didn't make up something new. As eyewitnesses of the resurrection for these apostles, having witnessed Christ, this is key. This is of absolute importance regarding their doctrine and the good news. John Calvin quoted this regarding this passage. He says, we are thus enabled to distinguish between a true and a false church. This is of the greatest importance for the tendency to error is always strong. And the consequences of mistake are dangerous in the extreme. If you go to, if you drive by Culver's, they have something called the flavor of the day. Have, has that ever persuaded you to stop there? And hey, that sounds really good. And sometimes if they have these advanced screens, they even have a picture of it, right? And, and is that that's part of their marketing scheme? Hey, let me, well, I, I heard the name, but I saw the picture. I stopped there. I'm going to go eat whatever that uh, flavor of the day is. Here, what we ought to understand is that we have all kinds of flavors of the day. Messages, competing messages. You know what? We have to acknowledge this. Hey, hey, we, we need to focus on this. But you realize, what we have right here is that you have the message of Jesus Christ. It is unchanging. That should be the church's focus. I recall my time in seminary. And oftentimes, we as these young men were constantly trying to push the professor to make more extreme statements. And these men, who all of, all of whom were ministers, they were the ones who were holding back, saying, no, no, we can't, we can't press that far. You young men are trying to press us to make certain statements. After aging a little bit, I come to realize that they are the ones who are far wiser than us. The more you learn, 
the more you realize how much you don't know. Here, we think about how many of these men wanted to make a name for themselves. But then we think about how the model of ministry, the very simple model, it's, it's true for a minister, it's true for an ordained, ordained officer, it's true for any Christian. Summarize this way. Serve the Lord Jesus with every ounce of your being. Serve as if you, know, you have no tomorrow or, or that you're not holding back some kind of reserve. And hope and pray that you will be forgotten. Isn't that simple? Right? So that's, that's that simple. Hey, yeah, I remember this guy. He served well. I grew under his ministry. What was his name? Don't remember. What was his face? I can't see it. But he, he pointed me to Christ, and that was what was important. You think about the heretics. You notice the heretics are the ones who all have false doctrines named after them. You realize that? They're the ones who have the false doctrines named after them. For simplicity, some, some faithful men have doctrines named after them. That's only out of convenience, but... The the true people in the church who have names for themselves were the heretics. Because the ones who were faithfully teaching and preaching the good news, they were saying, hey, I haven't taught anything new. I've only taught what the apostles have been teaching. The tendency to error is always strong. The warning that the apostle Paul gave to these Galatians that they so quickly were deserting him who called you. We saw the same thing in the warnings to the churches in Revelation. It was barely one generation. It was within the lifetime of the apostle John. He was still alive. He was on the island of Patmos. He's a contemporary of Jesus. That was less than a generation. You think about the warnings, how severe those warnings were to these churches. Sinners tend to get bored easily. Yet sinners who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit will long for the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what's important. Here is some heart searching for you and for me. Are you tired of hearing the gospel story of our Lord Jesus being preached to you. If in your heart of hearts you're this close to telling me, Pastor, we're tired of hearing this message over and over and over again. I'm warning you, you are this close to apostasy. This is a message that we as sinners need to hear all the time. Because the good news of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, who died on behalf of sinners, death could not contain him. He was raised to life for our justification. This is a message that we should desire to hear over and over and over again. Imagine, I realize, you think about any of these shows, these contemporary shows, right? Anytime they have time travel, my wife and I says, oh, it gets, it gets crazy. It, it, it's just... Out of this world, hey, we're, we're lost now. And in fact, that was one of the shows, Lost, right? Time Machine, right? Well, imagine, humor me for a moment. We have a time machine, right? First century church, 
time machine to the 21st century church. All right? So you take this person who was living in the 1st century described in the very book of Acts, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And that 1st century Christian time machine here, teleport or whatever, beam, beam me in, right? They're, they walk right in the door. Right? Well, first thing, they're going to look around and say, well, you've got some strange clothes, right? And, and your, your fashions are quite weird. And, and this, this uh, board of light, whether large or small, this board of light, you guys, you guys spent too much time staring at your board of light, right? Your, your devices, right? But then they're going to look at what we're talking about, right? They're going to think about this book that we have. You have devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, whether or not that's the Lord's Supper proper, or that's a meal which we sit down together to have, we're doing both of those. And then to prayer, public prayer, and we have prayer meetings. Hey, isn't this the exact same thing that they were doing 2,000 years ago? There's going to be some familiarity with that. And you ask yourself, are we ever bored of this? We shouldn't be. Because it all revolves around our Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot be boring to us. So that's the foundation of the Apostles' doctrine for Christ's church. The second point, the centrality of Christ to his church. Second half of verse 20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Here we have this image of the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the essential part of two walls of a building. So it's the corner. Two walls come off of it. And you can imagine if, if this stone weren't this prism, but let's say it was like a trapezoid or a parallelogram. You, you understand the difference. So the trapezoid, right? The angles aren't 90 degrees. It's something less. Just imagine what would happen to that wall if you tried to build off of it, right? You're not going to have a 90 degree angle for that wall. You're going to have uh, some, some kind of a lesser angle. The building will be entirely off. This is why the cornerstone was important. It was equally part of two walls, this cornerstone. And you think about this image of the Apostle Paul talking about earlier in chapter 2. You have Jew and Gentile. The, the biggest distinction between men. And it's as if he's saying, well, we have one wall. Jesus is the cornerstone of that wall. These are the Jews. These are the stones, people who are part of the church. And Jesus is the cornerstone for this other wall, which is Gentiles. And the cornerstone is Jesus. And whatever distinctions you want to make, we see in other parts of Scripture, whether it be Jew or Greek or slave or free, whatever there is. Jesus is that cornerstone that brings them together. The two become one. The two become one. Jesus then is the one who gets to define the shape, the beliefs, the actions, the attitudes, the outcomes, and the life of his bride, the church. Here, Jesus is front and center in his church. But that must also be true that Jesus is front and center in your life. Is Jesus the reality that governs your everyday decisions? Do you 
Make your decisions in life based upon fear, based upon doubt, based upon hate. These are all generated by the world and the spirit of the world. Or do you make your decisions based upon faith in Jesus Christ founded upon his word? It's either going to be one or the other. Your reality will be set by your news feed from your phone or your reality will be set by the scriptures and what Jesus teaches. Think for a moment here. Think for a moment here about truth. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, let's turn there. Corinthians 15, verses 1 and following. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Is it true that Jesus was raised from the dead? Say yes. Yes. Is it true that two plus two is four? Is it true? Is it true that Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK? Well, maybe, right? So here, here I'm what I'm trying to tell you is hey, listen, you have certain facts of history, and then you have the testimony of scripture. Do you understand the difference? You might believe somebody else killed JFK. Who cares? What we're looking at here is the truth of Scripture. And it doesn't have the same weight. Do you understand the difference? You might have certain beliefs about history. Right? Neither of us were there however many years ago. The bottom line is we ask, what is the foundation of our faith? It is the Lord Jesus risen from the dead. What is the basis for our relationship one with another? Is that we have a common faith in Jesus Christ. We're free to believe different things. All kinds of things that we might hold to differently. But we ask ourselves, are those other things the litmus test by which we say someone should gain access to the church? Someone should be received as a brother or not? You and I should be very careful, especially in light of the competitions for truth and with falsehood. The other things in life that say, you know what? Our focus ought to be on something other than what Jesus is, who he is, what he came to do. There are several pitfalls regarding regarding Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Here we think about Loving the blessings that come with our Lord Jesus rather than loving Christ himself. You know what happens there? When the blessings stop, Christ is gone. The follower is gone. 
you hear this come up. Hey, I actually know someone, a friend of my parents, who said that his father who died, he rejected this and said he's no longer following Jesus. Was your father going to die at some point? Yes, he was. When the blessing came to an end, the man was no longer following Jesus. You think about the Christian life. It seems as if for every Christian, at some point, those difficulties come. They must come. For us to say, wait a minute, why am I following Jesus? For some, the end of the road is there. That's it, I'm done. Jesus failed me. The rest of us, we realize, wait a minute, I was following Jesus for entirely the wrong reasons. Jesus indeed is my hope and joy. Difficulty comes to my life, not because Jesus is the one who is supposed to protect me from all those, but rather he's the one who sends them so that I might treasure him all the more. Here another pitfall is loving the truth of Christian doctrine without loving Christ in a relationship with him. You know what this results in? I'm going to tell you what it results in. It results in something that is cold, hard, and just plain ugly. You have any of these Christians that you've met? They might actually... They might actually have the same confession we do, right? The Westminster Confession of Faith. Big deal. You know what? Someone who falls in love with that doctrine outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, it will only be cold, hard, and ugly. It will be a worthless religion. Here we think about how the Lord Jesus should be exalted in our lives. For the self-righteous, Christ and his perfection, this will be a thorn in their side. Anytime they hear about the perfection, the holiness, the glory of Jesus Christ, for the self-righteous, that will be a knock on them. Hey, that's proof that I fall, that I fall short of God's perfect standard. So they will attempt to humanize Jesus and make him less than perfect. Instead, for the rest of us, we should be those who delight in Jesus Christ and that he would be exalted because we realize unless we worship and believe upon the one who is perfect in holiness, we have no salvation because he is our Savior and unless he is perfect, we're still in our sins. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ realize it's not self-righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. And we should be confessing we have no righteousness of our own. But for the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he gives to us by faith. And that you and I should be those who say that he indeed is the cornerstone. He is our hope. He is our hope for glory. He is our hope for eternal life. He is our hope for the forgiveness of sins. So here, the Christian church... Throughout history can come up with all kinds of extracurricular standards for what faithfulness looks like. I'm warning you, don't do it. Don't do it. We think also here, even in this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, 
If there's anything that this passage teaches us, is that Jesus is the one who did the racial reconciliation. Between Jew and Gentile, it was his work. We ought not to think of racial reconciliation of, hey, you need to acknowledge this, this, and this, and this, and we need to start doing this, this, and this, and this. When instead we should be thinking, this is what Jesus did. You think about those, the statements in verses 14 through 16, those were all past tense. This is what Jesus did. It's not what you and I have to do to achieve it, it's what Jesus has done. Here, the real warning is to all of us about the church's tendency to error. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. This was to the church in Ephesus. Here, the warning was, forgetting your first love. Forgetting your first love, the love who is Jesus Christ. Perhaps in common day language, forgetting your first love might be thought of in terms of the seven-year itch. Right here, it was a movie, the 50s, the seven-year itch. After seven years being married, people get bored. May you and I never get bored of our first love who is Jesus Christ. If we ever get bored of him, then we go off into apostasy. Here we think about the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And think for a moment about this pattern of the sins of commission and the sins of omission. So the sins of commission are the acts that God forbids us from doing. Murder, hatred, lying, uh, adultery. That people tend to think of those as the worst sins. We're never told that in scripture. But we think about the error of falsehood. And you think about how, well, is the church promoting and teaching that which is obviously false? Are they promoting lies? That's like the, the sin of commission. That's obviously wrong. But we also have the sin of omission, the error of de-emphasis, not focusing on the central truths. So we could talk about all kinds of things regarding Scripture. But if we've forgotten Jesus Christ risen from the dead, this here is the sin of omission. The church is not talking about what Jesus did, who he is, and how all of our lives must revolve around him. Here, we've committed the sin of omission. There will always be a competing message from the world. There always will be regarding what is important. Are we as the church going to be preoccupied with the contemporary issues? Or you realize, in two years, in five years... In 10 years, in 50 years, whatever contemporary issues there are, they'll be completely forgotten, even by the world. Here we think about the real Jesus. The real Jesus, then, is your only access, the true hope of knowledge of the Father. This is John 14, 8. This is also... Ephesians 2.18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If Jesus is anything, 1 Timothy 2.5, he is the one and only mediator between God and man. He's the only one who stands in that gap between the Almighty 
holy and righteous God who is wrathful and sinful man who is a proper recipient of his wrath. Jesus alone is the one who mediates between the two of us. He alone is the one who bears the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Jesus must be your true peace because he alone is the one who establishes peace between God and man. He is also the one who establishes peace between men and men, Jew and Gentile, united as one in a new humanity. We have also that Jesus is your eternal joy. This is eternal life, that they may know you, this is God the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That Jesus must be front and center in your life. We must not come up with other litmus tests for what a true Christian is and ought to be. Here, we ought to be following the steps of the apostles who came before us. And I close with this very verse from Jude, verse one, chapter 1, verse 3. Contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Are you one who is contending for the faith? Realize that this good news of the gospel was entrusted to you. You must not only believe on it, you must promote it. You must share it. That your convictions must be based on it. That all other convictions have to pale in comparison to this one. That our Lord Jesus indeed is risen from the dead and that he is our only hope for eternal life. And we go to our God together in prayer.